We have been walking through uh, this series called Unfiltered. Today is the last day of the Unfiltered series. Um, and we've been going through 10 images that spell out uh, the story of Scripture. And so these are so important for us to understand because we really believe that the Bible is the very speaking voice of God. And so if we want to be closer to God, we need to hear his voice. And so today I want to go over the last two images in the series. And the first one is the image of a map. So uh, this map uh, represents this theme in scripture um, of reaching people. The scripture over and over in, in all sorts of different ways through the Old and the New Testament talks about reaching people in every corner of the world, reaching those in your neighborhood, reaching those in the places you frequent, reaching um, people in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. The scripture is very uh, wide-ranged. It is talking about all people and all nations, not just our little corner of Erie, Pennsylvania, or wherever you live in your reading the scripture. And what it says is that the whole idea is that God has given us the hope of the cross that we talked about last week, and that hope needs to be something that we are constantly reaching and spreading out across every place that we go. Um, I want to give you some examples. In the Old Testament, uh, the command in Genesis 128 says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And a lot of times when we read that, we, we think that means get married and have children. <laughs> but actually the context of that is uh, that God's people were meant to spread his image to every corner of the world. To, to take his image and be fruitful and multiply it and fill the earth with his image. And looping all the way back to week one when we talked about a mirror as one of the, the images that we're talking about in scripture. He's saying, I made you all mirrors. Now go show everybody what that looks like. Don't just stay with the other mirrors. <laughs> go, and, go and reflect me everywhere you go. In Genesis 12, um, God tells a man named Abram to leave his country, go to a new land, and he promises him that as he does that, all the people on the earth will be blessed. And so he gives us this example that Abram's going meant people would be coming to understand a relationship with God. And so as we sort of walk through the Old Testament, there's so many examples of this idea of reaching others throughout the scripture. I want to look at Jeremiah 31 as another example. Uh, 31, 34, I have the verse on the screen. It says, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sin no more. And this passage is urging people uh, to spread the message between each other. So it says, no longer will they have to say, hey, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord. They're spreading the message because the scripture implies they did that so much that everybody knew them already. And so they did the work that the scripture is calling us to do. Uh, another example of where this map image is seen is all through the Psalms. If you read the Psalms, David is declaring, I'll praise you among the nations. I'll sing praises of your name. God must have been prompting David uh, that the message of God, the Psalms that he was giving him, were for everyone, for every person, for every heart, everywhere. And so even then, God was asking the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament believers to spread the message everywhere. 
And so we have to ask ourselves, is this our heart? Is our heart um, to spread the message to every nation, to every, every person that we can find, to, to spread the message to all of humanity? Does our heart reflect God's heart? Or are we in a position where we understand the gospel and so we're good? And we forget that this image, this command that God is asking us to do is part of being a Christ follower. In the New Testament, the same theme continues. In fact, it's probably even a little bit more prominent because Christ is saying, okay, here it is. Here's the plan for building the church. Here's the plan for people to know me. You're going to tell them. And so he goes on about different ways to do that. One of the core key passages that we center an entire core value around our church on uh, is Matthew 28 and 16 through 20. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw them, uh, him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So it is saying by nature that this is an action step, that our going helps people coming. Our, our going, our making disciples is God's plan for the evangelization of the world. It is his plan for getting the hope of the cross into everyone's heart and into everyone's life is for us to talk about it. And I love how in this scripture, he equips us with everything we need. He says, I've given you all the authority. I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've given you everything that you need. I've given you everything that you need to do this. I've prepared the way. I've created the appointments. I have, I have um, synced the conversations and I'll seal the deal when it's over. You just have to show up. God made it so easy for us, and yet we so often forget that that is what we're supposed to be available for, and we shut down the opportunities that we could have. So having that willingness of heart to share the gospel is really important to Jesus. Having that, that, that um, feeling that we can fulfill the call that God has on our life, and we're willing and ready and able to do it, however God wants to do it. And so having the tools to be able to um, be able to explain the scripture and to be able to help people understand the gospel is really important. And I think one of the things that I want to talk about today, one significant thing as believers, if you're willing to accept the call in your life and the command to go and make disciples, is we have to learn when to contend and when to contextualize when to contend and when to contextualize. So we find sort of this idea of contending in the book of Jude. Um, it says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So contending comes from Jude. So where the Bible just commands us to contend for our faith. Contending means um, to take position in an argument, to say, this is how it is, this is what the truth is, and we're going to stand on that, and nothing is going to waver. That's what to contend means. And, and I do believe that contending is a very important part of 
having faith. It's a very important part of spreading the faith. However, we have to learn to contend in the right places and for the right things. All right, are you following me? We have to learn when to contend. So for example, there are core beliefs that if you call yourself a Christian, regardless of culture or time, you believe these things. They're like the deal breakers, the main things, the have-tos. If you don't agree with the things I'm about to say right now, you're probably not a Christian. Okay, these are the things that all Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, all churches, Christian churches believe in these things. And here they are. And you can get excited about these things because they're the core part of what we believe. There's one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are sinners by nature and by choice, but God came on a rescue mission in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he was born of a virgin, lived without sin, died on a cross in our place for our sins as our substitute. Then he was buried, but three days later, he rose from death. He conquered Satan, sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God. And he has ascended into heaven where he's ruling and reigning even right now. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Are you with me on those things? All right. So those are the things that as believers in Jesus, we should contend for. Those are the things that are no, non-negotiable. Those are the things that we stand on top and we say, this is the truth because that truth will set you free. And I believe that this culture and generation are hungry for truth that never fails. And I believe that when things are changing and wavering so much in our culture, that these beliefs are constant and true. And this is what the scripture is saying when it says, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Now, there are countless things that we could fight against. Countless things. But the true prophetic voice that the world needs is rooted within the deep and the strong and the true spirit of Jesus Christ. And so by standing up and saying, we are against all of this stuff, but never telling the world what we're for, sends a very mis- appropriated message. In fact, we can spend our life listing off things we don't agree with, protesting, fighting, lodging complaints, lecturing and judging people. But first, let's be really, really clear on what we're for. Because maybe that will take care of a lot of that other stuff. Let's be really clear that we're fighting for the faith and what's important to us. That's what contending is. And I believe there are moments where that's what you need to do. And you need to stand and, and never, not waver from those truths. And then there are also moments where you should contextualize. And you do these also in conjunction with each other. It's not one or the other. But sometimes contextualizing is even maybe more appropriate in the moment. And that comes out of 1 Corinthians 9. We'll read that scripture in a moment. But it's what a missionary does. When they go into a culture, and they, the first thing they do when they get there is they say, okay, who's here? How do they think? What do they wear? What do they eat? How do they act? Where do we have uh, in common? What is it that I can say, oh, we both like Wi-Fi that isn't slow? Awesome. You know, <laughs> we both like these things that, that we can come into context on. And for you and I, it's contextualization is saying, what would it look like if Jesus came into my office? What would it look like if Jesus came into my school? 
What would it look like if Jesus came into my house? What would it look like if Jesus came to my holiday dinner? (laughs) What would that look like? What if he came in and he didn't try to impose Christianity on anyone, but he tried to propose Christianity to everyone? What, What would that look like? And in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul says, I've become all things to all men, so that by all means I might save as many as possible. And I do so for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessing. So Paul is saying, no, I, I will contend for the faith. I'm not going to go outside those truths and that bounds, but I want to reach everybody and I'll do whatever I can and I'll be flexible in my methods and I'll fight for things before I fight against things. I will find what we have in common before I begin with what we don't. I will begin a conversation with seasoned love and grace and say, what is it that we can agree on before I begin to tell them how wrong they are about all of the things that they've posted that they support on social media? I walk into a situation and contextualize. And when it comes to helping people understand the hope of the cross, I really believe that you can't start at a point where God isn't working in the person. Let me say that again. You may look at someone and say, I know what you need. You need to stop X, Y, Z. I know what you need. You're, You're making dumb decisions. And if you walk into that conversation and you say that, it may or may not go over very well. <laughs> they, typically, they probably won't get on their knees and say, you're right. <laughs> you know, here's the moment. You're exactly right. So when it comes to helping people understand the hope of the cross, you have to find where the shoe pinches for them. You, you have to find that point of entry and authentic grounding And in that moment, the gospel will become their reality. I really believe you may know their struggle. You may think you understand why they're having such a hard time. But if they don't see it, your advice will come off as judgmental and critical. And really, you need to sit back and ask God, what should I do next? Be the willing vessel. Pray for an open heart and let God do his part. I think here's where we mess up evangelism when we try to do God's part. You, you'll never mess it up when you do your part. In fact, if you don't do your part, that's where the, the gap is. But when you try to do God's part, we can do more damage than good. When we think we might have a better plan, so we step into the shoes of the Holy Spirit and we start imposing our thoughts and advice and say, well, here's what you need to do. Like, here, here's the situation. And we begin to say that, that their relationship with God is, is in our hands. There's a terrible result when we take that approach. In fact, some of you might say, I've had that happen to me before. Someone before maybe you were a believer had tried to, to strong arm you into a relationship with Christ, and that made you more frustrated. That made you further away from the cross. You know, it's interesting the scripture addresses what happens when we try to do God's part. And in Matthew 23, 1 through 4, here's what happens when we try to do God's part of the map, when we try to do God's part of the strategy. Uh, Follow along with me. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. 
So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But don't do what they do, for they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And my heart is so deeply struck that when we walk around tying up heavy loads and weighing down others in our legalism and in our expectations, yet we are not willing to lift a finger to help them when they're hurting, especially if we don't agree with their struggle. Maybe it's the type of struggle that we're against. So we can't help them because we're against it. And, and we draw this line. We forget what we're for, but we're against that. And so there's no way we could help them. We can, there's no way we can lift a finger to help them. And you know, in all of Jesus' preaching, he came down the hardest on the Pharisees. In all of his preaching, it wasn't the adulterers, it wasn't the, 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 the thieves, it wasn't the, uh, the, the, the gluttons, it wasn't the liars, it was the Pharisees, it was the people who pretended that religion, used religion as a pretense, and said that this is what the gospel is. Because nothing is more opposite to the spirit of the gospel than the spirit of religion. Nothing is more opposite. And, and most of the time, Christianity is sort of presented as, you sinners need to repent. Whew, thank goodness we're good over here. You know, We're the good guys. You're the bad guys. And we draw this sort of line. But here's the truth. Sin is the enemy of Jesus, without a doubt. We've talked about how it breaks the heart of God last week and, and how we can't live in it and just abuse the spirit of grace. But sin is the enemy of Jesus. But so is the spirit of religion. So is the judgment that we get of sin. So is being judgmental and critical of people in sin. That is the enemy of God too. You know, sin tends to be visible so we can judge it, you know, more. Religion is that thing in your heart that's invisible that no one really knows except it leaks out and it lives in the heart and the mind and the motives and often that can be more deadly to us. Before Paul became a Christian, he was a sinner, but his real problem was religion. I think sometimes we forget that. He says this, um, I was a Pharisee, which is the strictest of the strict. He, he studied under the leading rabbi. He went to the best theological school. He probably had the entire book of the Old Testament in, in the original Hebrew memorized. Paul had all of this. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. He said, here's my problem. I was religious. I was so religious that I was judging people and condemning people and opposing people and hurting people, and I realized that wasn't the gospel at all. I wasn't being like Jesus at all. There's no room in the kingdom of God for religious haughtiness. There's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for boastfulness or keeping a record of wrongs or comparing ourselves to end up better than other people. There's no room for it. And when we approach evangelism in that way, and when we say, we'll just go tell them they're wrong, we are not being Jesus. Jesus has more than one enemy. It's both sin and religion. 
But the secret weapon against religion, the thing that disarms it in every way, is love. Love keeps us out of that legalism. Loving people that we want to share with the cross of Christ is the thing that will make sure our motives are good. It's the thing that will guide our words. It's the thing that will remind us to fight for something and not fight against something. Look at the person next to you and be like, aha. Because I feel like we're, okay, all right, good. We're all here today. Aha, oh, oh. (laughs) Loving people. Loving people through the context. And so 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love drives out fear, and God is perfect love. And so here's what we need to do. Ask God to increase our love for people so that we care more about their eternal destiny than our own comfort. So that we care more about their eternal destiny and more about them getting to heaven than judging them for the things they've already done wrong. And bringing up all the lists that we care more and love them more into a relationship with Christ, that we can ignore maybe some of the things that outwardly look bad and say, where's God working on them and start there and let God take over their whole life. In Matthew 9, this was written about Jesus. It said, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus didn't look at them and say, they're idiots. He didn't look at them and say, They need to get it together before they get over here. Or, they did it again. I'm just frustrated. I'm disappointed. Those are things we say when we're disappointed in people for not getting their lives right with Jesus. But it says that Jesus said he looked at them and had compassion on them. In fact, he even cried. He, He had this moment that he loved them so much that he wanted just them to understand how much he loved them. And he wept over his children about being lost. More than once in the scripture. And so when we are critical or judgmental of people that make bad choices, we're not being like Jesus. He never did that. Romans 9, Paul says the same thing. He says, I'm in anguish over people that don't understand the gospel. I'm in anguish over people that don't understand the cross of Christ. It's because Paul got so close to God's heart that he was infected by his passion for people. In Matthew 11, this is a kind of a popular passage. You may have heard it before. Christ says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. And you know, I really, Jesus was referring to the heavy loads of religious traditions that the Pharisees and the scribes laid on the people. He was saying, people are walking around with this heaviness of trying to live up to these expectations and to this legalism, but if you come to me, I will take all of that load off of you and I will give you rest. Jesus calls the people to turn from relying on the religious systems and says, come to me, enter into a relational way, and my relationship will bring you rest. And that's exactly what we need to be communicating to all the world, to everywhere we go. The last image is um, that of a tree. We're going to look at that one. Now, in the beginning, um, God created humans, and he placed them in the garden with two trees, uh, a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were forbidden to eat from the second tree, 
But Adam and Eve disobeyed and they were cast out of the garden and they were cut off of the tree of life so that they might not eat of it and live forever in sin. But God always had a plan to restore humans to the eternal life in his glorious presence. He always had a plan. And in the scripture, we walked through the images of what that plan was. But the plan is to get us from the first garden with the first tree to a new city that he plans to build, to a new heaven and to a new earth. And I want to read to you from Revelation 21 that talks about this new heaven and new earth. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's, that's where we are right now. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's sort of this moment of this is what we've been working for all along. This is what all of time and all of destiny was waiting for. This is what's going to happen. And in verse 4 it says that he, God, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Is anyone looking forward to that day? Verse 5 says, he who is seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. And then he says, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha, I am the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. You know that there is more prophetic evidence about Jesus' second coming than any other prophetic event in the Bible. In fact, the end times is the most written about subject in all of scripture. There are over 150 chapters in the Bible in, uh, in which the majority of the chapter is about the end times. God felt it was important for us to know or he wouldn't have told us so much about it. And, and I don't, today we can't go into to all of that end times uh, information, but a few things that are really important is that at, in the end, believers will rise at the time of Jesus' coming. And the scripture says it's when the seventh trumpet is played. And the scripture says when we rise, we'll be judged at that time. We will face the judgment seat of Christ. And all of the things that we failed, all of the ways we've missed our mark, will be brought to attention. And in that moment, those who have confessed with their lips and believed in their heart will be able to spend eternity with Christ because Christ says, I'll take all the punishment for that. And then these resurrected believers will rule with Jesus for a thousand years. We call that the millennium, millennial reign as he restores things. So as God makes everything new, those believers will reign with him. And Jesus will make a new earth. And this new earth will be the eternal home of the new Jerusalem. That's what we saw in that scripture, the city that God is building. And God the Father and the heavenly realm will all be together. We'll be face to face. We'll, we'll all live in the same place. And the scripture says there'll be no tears, there'll be no death, there'll be no mourning. 
and it will be like the way things started, perfect. It'll come full circle. Back to the very creation moment when God made the the perfect garden and put Adam and Eve in it. He will bring everything back to the redemptive moment. Now, theologians debate whether this earth will be renovated or renewed or annihilated. I know if it's going to be renovated, Carl Zimmerman's going to have his truck all, all ready, all pulled up. But whatever God's going to do with this earth, we don't know. But he says that after the thousand-year reign, we know that from the scripture that fire will come down from heaven and devour the opposition And Revelation 20 says, Satan will then be permanently cast into the lake of fire, never ever allowed to do anything again and be completely annihilated. And the glorious description of this city that God is building is found in Revelation 21 and 22. And whether it's symbolic or real, the description introduces us to this magnificent and excitement of eternity. That it will be better than we can even dream. It it will be this amazing place where God is so present that nothing outside of him can exist. That nothing outside of him can, can be there. And the Lord God will finally claim the full victory that he purchased on the cross. And we'll be there to see it. We'll be there in that moment to see it. And that's what the scripture says we can look forward to. That the tree signifies where we started And that through all of that time, through all of the scripture, all the way through, that it's bringing us to this point. That it is the end of the story that's really the beginning of the story. (laughs) Because it's just the beginning for a life full of joy and peace and and, and nothing that, that, no struggle and no trial. And this perfect place of being with Jesus, of being with our Lord forever. And it is that hope that we have. And the tree image signifies where we came from and where we're going. And that God has done it all. So I want to just real quickly review all of the images that we saw in this series. We we started, if you remember, with the mirror. We started with the mirror and how God created us to be like him, to bear his image. God created all of us to be like him and to carry his image and to show the world who he was. This is a core part of the scripture. And then we talked about the apple and the snake and how God created us in his image, but sin broke that image and sin caused the separation between us and God. And we continue to sin no matter how hard we try at times, but God is trying to put the pieces of our life back together. God is trying to put the mirror, the broken mirror back together so that we can be an image to him. But in his grace, we can reflect who Christ is even in our brokenness. Then we went on to talk about the lamb. And how God sent the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that the strategy for redemption established the means for freedom. And that before the beginning of time, God knew that the image of the mirror would be broken. And that he had a strategy. He had a plan. And he sent the strategy and the plan and the metaphor of a fluffy white lamb. (laughs) And then we went on to the fourth image. And we talked about the covenant and how God made a promise to us that he would make a way for his people to return to him. 
And he showed us how to live holy. And he said, these are the things that are going to put your broken life back together. But I know even as hard as you try, you won't be able to get there. So the Lamb of God is going to take away the sins of the world. But this covenant will remind you that I never break my promise. And then the next image was of the temple. Reminding us that the scripture brings the presence of God close to us. And that God is not some far off person. He wants us to draw close to him. As we sang this morning, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Your presence is welcome here. And through the scripture and through the word, God wants us to have an everyday relationship with him and enter into the temple that becomes just everywhere he is, which is everywhere. The next image was of anointing. That God wants to show up and abide and live in the power of the Holy Spirit, that God came to heal and liberate and restore joy to his people, and he's doing that, and we're receiving that, and he's doing that through the anointing of his Holy Spirit all the time. And last week we looked at the cross and how it is the climax of the story and how the cross turns guilty hearts into grateful hearts. And the cross is central to our faith. Without the cross, we don't have a purpose. Without the cross, we don't, the strategy doesn't, doesn't win. The, at the cross, in the greatest weakness Jesus had, he was showing the greatest strength of who God is. And we can lean in at the cross. All of our problems stem from sin, and therefore all of our solutions are found at the cross. And then we took communion, which is image 8 which is the physical representation of the work on the cross, the bread being the body of Christ, and the wine or the, the juice being the blood of Christ. And today, we ended with the image of a map to remind us that God's continued call through us through all of Scripture is to take those first eight images and spread it everywhere we go. That it isn't just to keep it to ourselves, but we're to take the message far and wide, every place, everywhere, because the hope that it offers is so deep and so beautiful, and Christ wants to have a relationship with every person. And then the final image is of a tree, which reminds us of the story being told throughout the scripture that the first tree began it all, but the last tree will end it all in that there's a new heaven and a new earth that God is making, God is creating, and there's glory that awaits those who follow Christ. And you know, the God who authored this scripture, the God who came up with all of those images and all the, the words in between, is the God who authored time and the God who authored you. He created you, he created me, and no one loves us any better than he does. And so everything that we've learned in this series all comes to this conclusion of that he loves us so much that he gave us his very speaking, anointed word of God so that we could hear it, that we could understand it, and it could change us. And then in turn, it could change other people. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for us this morning. Father God, I thank you so much that you gave us your word and that in your word you showed us uh, how much you love us. You showed us how much you want to have a relationship with us, God, that you created a strategy and a plan so that we could come to a saving understanding of who you are and then live with you forever in the new Jerusalem, in the new city that you are building. God, I pray that our love for your word would grow. 
I pray that over these last weeks, as we've looked at it, we've looked at slices of it, that our love for your word would grow. And Lord, as it grows, we could become people that are, have a deeper understanding that can contend for our faith, that can fight for things that we are for, God, but can also contextualize and see where people, uh, where you're working in them, and then uh, do the part that you're asking us to do, but allow you to do the other part. God, I pray for a burden that you would put on each of us today for someone in our life that doesn't know you. I pray, God, that we wouldn't be able to forget, that we wouldn't be able to shake it, that you would give us opportunity as we pray that you would help us, us be the map, that you would help us spread the gospel to every part of it, that we could do what you're asking us to do and do it in a, in a privileged way, in a way that we're honored to carry the truth and the cross of Christ, the, 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 the great amount of love that you have, God, that we would do it in love. And God, I do pray for a great anticipation for what you're building. Lord, a great anticipation for what you're renewing and what you're restoring. God, thank you that what you're doing to the new earth and what you're, you're going to do is what you're doing in each of us, that you're restoring and renewing us day and day, that you're redemptive all the time. God, I pray you would redeem every part, even the hard parts and the dark parts and the parts that we don't want anyone to know. God, would you begin a redemptive construction work on those things? God, we love you. Thank you for this church family. And thank you that we rest solely on the speaking voice of you. We're anchored in teaching. And God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.